1890, around then, in the 1890s, my wife Kathy, uh, her grandfather, got on a boat in Canton, in China, and was told it was going to the Californian gold fields. He was uh, looking for a new start, that life would be better. There was no work where he was. You go to the gold fields, you make a fortune, a whole new start. Um, in 1851, my great-great-grandparents, grandfather um, Rodney and uh, grandmother, or great-great-grandmother Janet, got on a boat from the Isle of Skye called the Ontario and uh, uh, came to Sydney. Why? Well, they were expecting a new start with their seven children, aged 18 down to one. Um, it's a big thing to go to another country, really, from scratch, but people do it because they expect that life will be better. The difference with Ruth is that Ruth expects life will be tough. And I just wonder if we can think ourselves into, the, into you know, Ruth chapter 2. She's made this decision. She knows she's going to a foreign country where she'll be a second-class citizen, where she'll be looked down on. She'll be known as Ruth the Moabite. And yet she's still chosen to do that. Why? Because of her faith in the God of Israel and her commitment to look after Naomi. Incidentally, on those two stories about the migrants, Kathy's granddad, <laughs> the boat that was meant to be going to the Californian goldfields, pulled up at Medang in New Guinea. And they said, right, get off. That is why a little while later, Kathy is born in Rabaul, up the top there. So her dad got off, so her granddad got off with basically nothing and built a life. My great great grandparents, Rodney, was age 38. He died on the boat of typhus. And Janet McSween, my great great grandmother, arrived in Sydney, stayed at the quarantine station with seven children, a widow of age 36. She ended up on the north coast, on the Clarence River somewhere, and died in her 50s. But I we haven't been able to find her grave. It's a tough thing to go to a new country and start from scratch. Let's have a look at, uh, at Ruth and what happens with her. Uh, we've had a look at the thousand years of history and where uh, uh, the book of Ruth fits. And we've looked at Moab. You guys are all up to speed on that. Um, verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, notice Ruth the Moabite, you keep kind of, you know, hitting that drum, um, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Um, Naomi, you work out later, Naomi still has some land, okay, but she's going to have to sell it. Why? Well, she doesn't have any blokes to go and work it, okay, that she doesn't have the workforce, and they arrive, they haven't planted crops. The barley harvest beginning, but not, she hasn't been able to plant crops. And so they're really literally on the bread line. Uh, and then we get chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And as you read on, Boaz is wealthy and powerful, spoiler alert, and single. Okay, unmarried. Right, uh, let's go. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite, notice once again, Ruth the Moabite, uh, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find, uh, in whom I find favour. 
sorry, uh, behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Now, what's she going to do? Well, she's going to the, the, the Old Testament equivalent of Centrelink and was called gleaning. And it was the kindness of God in, in the law of Moses. Let me show you. Um, uh, what's gleaning? God had said, uh, this is one of the laws of Israel. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Uh, or in the book of, Ju- uh, book of Deuteronomy, as um, they're about to come into the promised land, God says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In other words, as you're going, you, if you drop grain on the ground, that kind of thing, the poor people could, those who didn't have fields, etc., could come along and pick up what was left or what was dropped. And it was a way of them feeding themselves, etc. All right. Let me just uh, read, the rest of this, read the rest of chapter 2 with you. Uh, well, here we go. And uh, ask three questions. So that's all we're going to do. Read the chapter, ask three questions. So what happens with Ruth? So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So he makes a welcome. And as well as that, you notice that don't lay a hand on you. She's an outsider and she's vulnerable. And even when she goes home, tells her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law says, yeah, do that because it's, it's dangerous. Um, the end of the book of Judges has a terrible story about what happens to a woman with a bunch of blokes. It's awful. But it's, it's for a single woman out in the middle of nowhere. And Boaz says, no, no I, I will look after you. And so Ruth is surprised. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been, told all, sorry, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people uh, you do not know, sorry, with a people you did not know before. Now, verse 12 is really important. May the Lord, who, the God of Israel, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, what's the picture? Um, the idea, the word there for, notice um, Boaz says, you've come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. 
Um, the word for wings, uh, or wing, canap, it can mean wing or border, a corner or shirt. It can mean the, the um, you know, if you're wearing a cloak and you lift it out, it can look like, like wings. Now, where does that idea come from? Well, it's the idea of the, of the eagle who spreads his or her wings over the chicks and looks after them. And maybe Boaz had been having his quiet time that morning and been reading the Psalms, Psalm 91, uh, where um, the Psalm says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Read down a little bit, says, He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So he's saying, I, may you find refuge under the wings of under the wings of the God of Israel. Now, tomorrow, when we talk about uh, what Ruth does in the middle of the night, etc., and um, uh, just, it'll be important then, okay? Trust me. Okay, so verse 13, what happens? Ruth says, May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord. She said, You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, um, though I do not have the standing in one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. Uh, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Uh, even pull out some stalks for her uh, from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. She's only supposed to pick up the scraps and he's saying, just make sure... You look after her, okay? Um, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley uh, and she gathered, so that she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. Now, the threshing idea, you know, you pound it or whatever and separate the grain out from the stalks. An ephah, as you know, is 35, uh, sorry, 35 litres. So she's had a big day, right? 35 litres of grain. Um, Verse 18, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So she's saved, you know, the, what Boaz gave her at lunchtime. Um, verse 19, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the uh, about the one. Sorry. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. Uh, the name of the man I work with today is uh, Boaz. She said. Uh, now, she has no idea whose field she's walked into. Right? So she's had the brush with fame, but but no idea. Um, that happened to me a few years ago. I've. Um, uh, it's a while ago now. I'm. Um, a church when we were meeting at Sydney Girls High School was in a band and he invited someone else from the band to church that night. So I've, I've given a sermon, I think I was speaking on 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage, etc. And um, after church, I'm just kind of standing there and this young, like a little bit younger than me, walks up, um, jeans, cowboy boots, longish hair. He says, oh, uh, you thought you did a good job. Shook my hand, turned around, walked out. And I... One of the girls who worked for our church is going. And I said, "What? What just happened? What?" She said, "I think his name's Russell Crowe," and so I get to shake hands with Russell Crowe. I didn't even know who he was. Anyway, but just what could have been. Um, but 
Naomi knows who he is, right? She just wandered into the field of Boaz. Why is Naomi excited? The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped, namely God, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. A translation of the word goel. Now, what's the significance of that? Okay, here we go. Um, each family in, in Israel had land given to them. And the time might come when you've had bad harvests or you've lost money or whatever and you need to sell your land. Uh, here's what the book of Leviticus said. Um, chapter 25. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Okay. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So the idea is that um, if you have to sell the land, your close relative has first call on that land so that they can buy that and you can keep it in the family. And it turns out that Boaz is one of those kinsman redeemers. Um, he's one of the guys who could buy her land and kind of fix it all. Um, all right. Now, verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, well, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. There you go. Three questions. First question. Why is Boaz so kind to Ruth? Now, had he noticed, I, you know, was she hot, etc., etc.? I, I don't know. All right? But let me show you a better reason. Let me show you a better reason. Is, and, and we'll come to a third one that God had commanded them to be kind to for, foreigners. But I, there's a family reason why Boaz is so kind to her. And I've not seen this in any of the commentaries. I I've never seen a scholar who's noticed this. Here's the question. You get to Matthew's gospel, right? And Matthew gives you genealogy from uh, Abraham right down to Jesus being born. And one of the key stops on the way, verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. But have a look at this. Oh, go back, go back. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Yeah, okay, so Boaz is the man whose mother was Rahab. Now, those of you who are Sunday school teachers or those of you who read the Old Testament, who was Rahab? Not a rhetorical question. I say, who needs rhetorical questions? No. Tell me something about Rahab. It's a prostitute where? In Jericho. She decides to put her trust in the God of Israel and she ends up living with the Israelites. Foreigner, probably looked down on, difficult thing to do, new country, baby boy grows up with mum living with that. Rahab. Sorry? Rahab? You think? I'll have to check that. I, I think, well... Hmm. I'm sure it's Rahab the prostitute. Anyway, okay, we'll check that. I reckon that, that's my theory, that he saw her 
grow up in very much the same thing and deal with the same thing that uh, Ruth is dealing with. But I will check it. Okay, right. If I'm wrong, this will be just edited out of any recording. This actually never happened. So, okay. But thanks, Fiona. It's always good to have your pants around your ankles when you're giving a talk. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to firmer ground. Okay. There might be a reason why this isn't in any of the scholarly works. Okay. Um, second question. Where is God in this story? There's no word from God. There's no prophets appearing. There's no miracles. There's no... Where is God in the story? Everywhere. It's the fingerprints of God all over the whole story. Uh, let me show you chapter 2, verse, um, verse 3. Uh, right, so God seems absent in this story. There's no miracles, no prophets, no signs, etc. Can you see the fingerprints of God? Chapter 2, verse 3, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers and her, uh, this is the King James Version, right? And her hap was to light on part of the field, right? Now, what, is, uh, what does hap mean? Luck or fortune. She just happened to wander into the field of the, the one man who actually can fix all of this, right? And he just happens to be kind to her, etc., etc. Uh, now you may, uh, there's a couple of questions at the end of the outline for this talk about uh, can you see the fingerprints of God in your life? Um, these often you can only see those fingerprints in hindsight. Uh, I know for me, um, uh, I couldn't wait to get out of the town I lived in and escape from the church I was taken to and all those things and so I go to the big city and there's 200 rooms in New College at the University of New South Wales and I just happened to be put in the room right beside a young guy called Bryson Smith who was a switched-on Christian and learning two ways to live and all sorts of things. So there you look back and... Anyway, you be worth having a chat with people around that. Can you see the fingerprints of God in your life? And then third question, how does God uh, usually care for his people? What is the way that God does that? Well, how does God, uh, God care for Naomi? Well, it's that Ruth steps up and takes responsibility. Um, God actually tells his people, uh, in, uh, even in the Old Testament, woo, even in the Old Testament, keep going back. Um, sorry, that jumped forward. Here we go. Um, God tells his people to be kind to foreigners. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Verse 19. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So Boaz regardless of who his mother was, yet to be determined, um, he's just obeying what God said, be kind to foreigners. Okay. Now, it is interesting, when you get to the New Testament, how is it that God will, how is it that Jesus will care for his people? I think there's a reason that the church is called the body of Christ. Sure, there's all different parts, but in some ways too, it's his arms and legs, the way he gets things done. So all sorts of commands in the New Testament. Be devoted to one another, in love, honour one another above yourselves. And of course, love is practical in what it does. Or be devo um, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. 
or stop pushing the button now. Um, uh, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, actually, Jack Gibson, the, the former Roosters coach, had a great definition of hospitality. It's making people feel at home when you wish they were. Um, <laughs> Paul's, Peter's saying the opposite. Actually, do it because you want to do it. Okay? Make people out uh, And the John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Uh, that's how... Uh, Jesus cares for his people uh, through one another, as you love one another. So you see the story, you know? Ruth sacrificially loves and cares for Naomi. Boaz, I'm sure there were raised eyebrows as Boaz actually looked after Ruth. A few more um, we'll see tomorrow, right? Raised eyebrows. And yet he loves and cares for her. Um, so here's a question for you. I'm, I'm the new boy. I don't, know, I don't know, I'm just walking around bumping into things. How's Salt Church going at looking after one another and loving each other? And sure, you can have, you know, there's a cup of tea once a week, but, but in terms of actually sacrificially caring for each other. Um, so I'll tell you something that's interesting. We don't always get it right, and, you know, the church is full of sinners and we, we don't always get it right, but when we do, it's a beautiful thing. And not only that, um, for Kathy and myself, when we've stepped up and looked after people, I guess we've had maybe six or seven, often as younger women, who've they've just come and lived in our house or lived in our rumpus room or whatever, sometimes for months on end. Or we used to have um, uh, Christmas for people who didn't have anywhere to go. We'd just say, look, if you would like to come and have Christmas lunch with us, and sometimes we'd have 20, 25 people on a huge table at, at Christmas. We'd have our kids thing you know, before breakfast and they get their presents, but then we'd have... Pe- and often they were people who were, how would we put it, doing it tough, didn't have anywhere to go on Christmas Day or whatever, and I think I can say every time we've done something like that, it's actually blessed us more than them. So there's a question for you. How's Salt Church going with um, looking after one another? And looking after those who are the battlers sometimes and doing it tough. It's worth, it's worth that, that's how God will care for his people. So two questions. Uh, you can see on the outline there. Uh, how are you as a community going caring for one another? And as you look back, can you see the fingerprints of God in your life? you pray with me? Our Father, we do pray. Um, thank you for this great story. We ask, please, you give us eyes that are open, that we may be able to care for one another in practical and uh, uh, sometimes sacrificial ways. We pray that as a community, Salt Church would be welcoming of outsiders too who need to be loved and cared for. Um, And we ask, please, you give us the wisdom and the vision to see your hands at work in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take some, <coughs> sorry, some questions in a minute, but um, I'll just get you where you'll see it, just for people around about. If you've got any stories of being able to look back and see the fingerprints of God at work, uh, why don't we just take a few minutes to share the When you look at the circumstances of Ruth, 
you tend to think non-Christianly that, oh, what good luck she had. And, and, and so my, I guess my question is, for either of you, is to get a comment about how do you, as a Christian, throw good luck out the door and see the providence of the Father in your circumstances and how you work. So you've got good luck on one side and God working his circumstances on the other and they mesh. Sort of. Yeah, I, I think it's about a changed world view that life is not just random or luck but there is actually a sovereign God who promises for example, the Romans 8 one, that everything will work together for your good. I think it's not a coincidence that as our culture has moved away from any kind of belief in, in God and um, his sovereignty and goodness to often, it's what Dawkins says, blind, pitiless indifference, that anxiety rates begin to go higher and higher and higher. So I think that's, that's a consequence of just believing that life is just random and, and the universe has just blind, pitiless indifference. So I think they're two very different, two very different worldviews. Now, of course, the, the difficulty in that is if you believe God is completely in charge and you're doing it tough and life isn't the way you want it and you keep praying and you don't get what you want, that, that's the hard thing for the Christian person to, to hold on to and to, and to trust. Um, too often we see Ruth and Ruth as a protagonist in the story, the one whose story is about, but your uh, description of Boaz and his compassion for Ruth and where he's come from made me think that um, he wasn't too busy or too proud to, you know, to put her to the side and too often I'm putting in a new life that going out to the community we can be a bit more like Boaz to help those who come into our community who need a um, who need support or need a kind of generous offer to help. So it's a, it's a different way of viewing groups. Thank you for that. Yep. Uh... I think the kindness that Boaz shows her is beautiful, that he doesn't seem to have an ulterior motive. And you'll see tomorrow, um, when she kind of gives him a surprise, it is a genuine surprise to him. So he's, um, he has resources and power, and he uses that to love and to care for someone who needs to be lifted up. So he's one of the, he is one of the few truly impressive men in the Old Testament. Um, uh, there's so many that are, you know, um, have, mass, well, have massive faults. He's, he's one of the most attractive characters in the Old Testament. And you're right, for me, helping people, it's not a question of have I got the money or whatever. It's like, yeah, money's fine. It's my time that I find hard to give. Um, so you're right about taking the time to actually be available to help people and care for people, etc. And the really hard one is listening. Oh, listening to people takes so much effort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. Marsha? Yep. Yes. Yes. Uh, interesting. People say, oh, how brutal the Old Testament is and all that stuff. Boaz is just living out the commands. As I've shown you, Boaz is just living out the commands of God. Be kind to the foreigner. Arrange to gl- let people glean, etc. Um, you know, that, that, so he just puts his, um, as he should, the umbrella over her and cares for her. Yeah. That's right. Sorry, I missed that. Yep, which is the way that Jesus treats... treats. You see, um, Jesus step in to protect those who are vulnerable. Again and again, particularly women in that culture. So that's uh, some of the most kind of gripping stories is him saying, no, stop, and, and putting the umbrella over different women to, to care for them. Yep. Um, so in verse 11, um, Boaz says to, to Ruth, I've heard how... You know, how you've been looking after your mother-in-law and, and, you know, the things that she's been doing. How important is it for, for us to share the good things that other people are doing? And I think I know the answer, obviously, because I was there on Thursday night. And maybe, I don't know, what's, what's your thought on, on how important it is to, yeah, be talking about what other people are doing and the good things that people are doing? Like, does it, does it matter? Keep going. You think you said you think what the answer is? Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess on on Thursday night when you spoke to some of the men, you were talking about the reason behind why we do the good things, and yeah, essentially the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Um, but yeah, I guess the danger is that that we become people who you know are celebrating those things, and I guess there's the element of humility that Ruth has. And she wasn't doing it, she was doing it to be kind and generous. She wasn't doing it for her own glory. Yes, yes. And so being prepared to do the right thing and not be noticed, right? That, that's the great question. Will you do the right thing even though it won't be noticed? Like, I think, what if I unpack the dishwasher and Kathy doesn't notice? Like, huh? I should do it anyway, as if she would miss it. But, like, she sees everything. But you keep going. Uh, that, that's a good thing to do. We ourselves shouldn't be blowing our own trumpets, but it is good to notice and encourage our brothers and say, yeah, I do see what you're doing, mate, and I think it's great. Because often, actually, I was talking to the blokes on Thursday night about endurance and patience, offering the just turning up again and again and again and doing the right thing doesn't look spectacular and people don't notice, but that's, that's what makes life work. And so to encourage one another lift one another up, the arm around the shoulder quietly. Very good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you're saying that. I think in the world we live in at the moment, there's so much bad news as well. I sometimes get overwhelmed by it. I think sharing what others are doing and the good that we're doing is so important to inspire each other, to keep going. It feels so hard and so gloomy and hopeless sometimes. 
Even Dougal's story about, I don't know who it was, turned up in the, in the rain to help him move in. Man, how good's that, taking one for the team? To help someone move is like, sucks the life out of you. But to do it in the rain, awesome. But to hear that story, it's great. Yeah. He does it as a sport. He turns up everywhere and does it. He's amazing. He's amazing. You can see how prosperity doctrine gets mixed up and falsely taught. In, a, in this root, in the book of Ruth. But the problem is taking passages out of context as well. Like many people take Jeremiah 31 out of context, you know, and other verses. And I think the difference between maybe a, a charismatic or a high church is that they don't point it to Jesus necessarily, where, you know, you can see God at action, but you've got to be, be reminded at the very end if your trust in God is there, then the end's there. You know, you've reached the end. Even despite, you know, the time of turmoil becomes good. But people continue to preach prosperity doctrine. Like when we lived in Peru, you know, the Mormons, the JWs, they build these mighty structures in, in shanty towns that make people guilty for not, you know, coming to church or giving to the church. And I think Ruth is a good book to remind us and point us back to Jesus in the very end, that there will be a good time, you know, prosperity with you, but not prosperity materially necessarily. Yeah. And, and there is that movement from the Old Testament, God promised material blessings to Israel. Yeah. You know, your crops are set if you're faithful. But there's a movement from the physical to the spiritual in the Bible. So you go from a physical temple to God's people gathered, etc. And it's like that with the blessings. Ephesians 1, where you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those things like health and prosperity, that, that's what he returns. But it's, it's take... It's, anyway, Josh. Um, I was just going to pick up on Warwick Emily's comments in terms of we shouldn't say we're lucky, but it would be nice if in our language, everyday language, we just learnt to say we've been blessed. Uh, and the way how God 
took Naomi and Ruth back to Israel. Because at the end of the day, Israel was the only nation that was following God's rule. And God was protecting the poor and the foreign. So they could turn over any other nation without that kind of protection. But it's amazing how God, uh, through pain and through hard times, took them to the right place to be covered but under the, the blessing from God's word. And that made me think about Jesus because even in our, in our worst times, we can go back to Jesus because he's the only one who can give us something. So that's one of the uh, takeaways from the lesson. But the second thing is that uh, I never saw Ruth uh, because we have been in Australia just one year. So for the very first time, I've been seeing uh, the, the book of Ruth under the foreign perspective because we left home, families, friends. Um, we have seen, uh, we know for, for real that we, we have been under God's shelter, and this is so awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Ivan. Yeah. Nathan, and then um, and Laura after that. Yeah, just uh, a question on, you know, as we got together then and talked about how we can look back and see the fingerprints of God in our life, and often it's in retrospective we see the best thing. Um, what do you say to the person that is, is struggling in their current circumstances? And we might, you know, say, oh, one day you look back and see how God, you know, we only seem to see it in the retrospect. Can we see the fingerprints of God in that day's day lives now? Or what should we encourage them to look back on our, I'm stuck right in the Bible, God's always telling the people, remember, remember what I did, remember how I, I saved you, look back. Can we look at the now as well, or look to the future, or should we encourage people to? The New Testament still says look back. The New Testament writers always say, if you want to understand that God loves you, you look to the cross and the resurrection. Yeah? Because your, your current circumstances might feel, what's the word, Am ambiguous. One of our Bible college lecturers, uh, Graham Cole, uh, he said the Christian life uh, has to be lived going forwards, but understood looking backwards. I think that's, I think that's what it is. And saying to people, yep, you're, you're hurting now. It, one day you'll see. Right? One, one day you will see. And that, I think that's part of the reason why the New Testament just talks about hope all the time. Um, not kind of, I hope so, but, but understanding what the future is in terms of hope. And they keep pointing to that. Um, and, and the more difficult life is, the more significant that hope becomes, I think. So what people don't need at the time is cliches uh, um, about, oh, it's not that bad, or if you just have enough faith, or say, no, no, there's hope. Just Katie? Can I add on to that? Um, in the waiting and in the now, no, um, Naomi's response is, God did this to me. I'm in this bad situation and attributes it all to God. Is that a response of faithfulness as well? Because she's that's an oh, I've had some really bad luck. Um, you know, really stuffed up my life, but she's going. Um, she, uh, she is right in that God has done this to her. Right? 
Isaiah 45, verse 7, I am the Lord, I bring prosperity, I bring disaster. Um, um, there's, a, there's another layer in there somewhere of, of the devil and spiritual warfare, but nothing happens outside the sovereign hand of God. And so I think that's a comfort. Now, that, it's kind of messes with your head a bit, but that's a comfort that nothing happens outside of the hands of God. And so, yes, yeah, she's right. Where she gets kind of the wobbles is saying that God's against her and God's doing evil to her. No, it's the severe mercy of God for her. And by the time we get to chapter 4, she'll see that. Yeah. Um, just to tie two camps together, our last year we looked at Romans 8 over three oh, talks. Yeah. And one of the things you see in Romans 8 is the groaning. Um, the, yeah. the groaning of the whole creation, the groaning of those who are indwelt by God's Spirit. Um, that is, there, there's an acknowledgement in the Bible that life is painful. Um, and God's Spirit within us groans as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's important for us to go, it's not instant that you understand um, everything. And so lament in the Psalms, for example, with... Uh, pouring out your heart to God, this is so hard, why are you doing this, this sucks, um, all my enemies are against me, why isn't it justice, why do I have to put up with this, uh, is a journey that we've all got to go through as preachers and children of God, uh, but it's a journey that's bracketed by faith in Christ's death and resurrection and hope for his return, mm. so that we can mm. trust him now. A couple more questions, so I've got Ali and I've got Laura. Okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. That's I missed that, mate. I think. There's ultimate hope beyond cure. Can I say the time to work out the understanding of being Christian and suffering? The time to try and work that out is before it arrives. Because when you're in the middle of it, you're just squealing and hurting. And it's very hard to think clearly. Like Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, it, it's, it's like that. So I reckon Macca might have... You've got thoughts on that? So work, at it, like, work out your theology on that while everything's okay. Because... You know, the hard times are on the way and it's hard to think clearly when you're in the middle of it. Friends of ours um, were given for their wedding present a book called How Long, O Lord, uh, which was not about marriage, it's about uh, society. <laughs> and um, they thought it a strange present, but they read it. Uh, later in life, they were to have a stillborn child. They were to have a 17-year-old with cancer. They were to have a son... Um, collapse at the end of a national sporting event thinking that he had heart failure. Um, difficult things going on in their life, but God in his wonderful sovereignty had prepared them in so many ways to think Christianly about the experiences that they were going to have as a family.
Uh, one last question, Ali. Um, sorry if you haven't had a chance. There's, we've got a weekend yet to keep talking. But. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about the fingerprints of God in not just the um, level of Ruth's life, but in uh, Moab's um, nationhood as well. And um, I, I hope I'm not stealing any thunder from your next talk, but uh, in Deuteronomy 23, we read that Moab will not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. And then after the tenth generation, we have Ruth. And if you look at the genealogies in Matthew, uh, hers is the tenth generation. Um, oh, well done. Is actually bringing Moab back into the assembly of Israel for the first time. So it's actually a prophecy as well. Well done. And, um, not only that, but um, the reason Moab was ostracised wasn't because of the um, incest. No. It was um, it was actually because they uh, hired Balaam yep. um, again to speak against them, but also they didn't meet. Um, the Israelites with bread and water on the road when they came out of Egypt. Yep. So yep. once again we have Boaz undoing those wrongs right to the point of barley bread and water. Yeah, so that's Numbers, the, the Balaam story, and there's the other one about the Baals. That's Numbers 22 to 25, something like that. Yeah, yeah that's good. I 